This show, The Detour, is about people and ideas, about how ideas come to life in people and how they live. Sometimes when we're planning episodes, we start with an idea or a question we hope to explore, and then we find people who will help with that. Sometimes we go the other way. We start with a person and then work back to the ideas their life and words bring to the surface. This episode is one of the latter kind, the kind that starts with a person. Like, I have a pretty sweet life, right? Because I motorcycle to work in the morning, I fly helicopters during the day, motorcycle home, then I get into a combine and chew through some wheat, right? Like, that is my dream day, and that's what I live quite often. A long time ago, more than three decades, I met someone who I had heard about first. A woman who I was told by the guy who was my manager at the first real job I ever had in a music and video store in Chicago. A woman who had been riding her motorcycle around North America and had stopped in Chicago and was working at the shop for a spell. Her name was Kim. I no longer worked at the shop when Kim was there, but I would pop by every now and then to catch up with John, my former manager. And he told me I had to meet Kim. So I did. And John was right. Kim and I became friends in Chicago for a few months before she packed her few belongings into a very small backpack and lit out again on her motorcycle, which she called Jezebel. From the moment she rode out of town through the present, Kim and I have been exchanging letters. Through these letters, I learned that sometime after leaving Chicago, Kim started driving trucks. And after she drove trucks, she became a helicopter pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force and flew a ton of missions in Afghanistan. Kim is still in the Canadian Air Force, mainly teaching other people, some from Canada, some from other countries, to fly helicopters. And she's also become a farmer and a baker. And even though Kim might not say this about herself, I can say, as someone who's been reading Kim's letters for decades, Kim is also a writer and very good with words. This past March, Kim came to Portland, and at a certain point while we were talking over a meal, it became pretty clear to me that I should ask her if she'd be game to have a recorded conversation about some of her big life choices. Flying helicopters for the Air Force, driving trucks, riding a motorcycle, and also what it might mean to make these choices and do these things as a woman. Kim didn't love the idea of being recorded. It made her uncomfortable. But Kim is less influenced by comfort than anyone I've ever known, and she generously ended up joining us for a conversation in the X-Ray FM studios in North Portland. We talked about a lot of things, and as we talked, it turned out that one of the big ideas we were talking about was risk. So here's Lieutenant Colonel Kim Wilton, who has been operating large, complicated, dangerous machines with serious purpose for many years. I hope you all enjoy hearing Kim on the detour. And Kim, thank you for being willing, once again, to step into discomfort, embrace a modicum of risk, and take this detour with us. Uh, Adam, did you have a radio program in university? Uh, briefly in yeah. col- with a couple friends. What was it called? I don't even remember because I was like, I, it was with Rob Hansen and Jordan Reed. I can't remember. 
Yeah, it was super brief. WKCO was the radio okay, station. Okay. That's good. Did you? I did. It was called Storytime. Um, I had it for about a year, and I would go in and I'd read a story I'd written that week and then put music around it. You'd read your own story? My own story, yeah. Wow. I used to have recording some of them somewhere, but it's a long time ago. But. So you would write stories once a week for well, the show? back when we were young, like, you'd be prolific, right? So I'd write, like, a story a day. Like, it was ridiculous. And uh, so I'd pick one from the week, and I'd read it. And uh, You'd pick one of the many stories you had written that, that week. week and, and then that. I'd put, like, ridiculous music around it. Like, the B-side from, like, those... Those storybooks, you know, those little albums with the that you turn the page when Tinkerbell rings. They always had the B side with music, like a like crazy music. Or and you think you still have recordings of those? I I might be in a box somewhere. And you think you have written versions of those? Stories? Oh, for sure, for sure, I have that. But uh, you know, in my in my museum, in my archives. Yeah, yeah. The Kim Wilton archives. Yeah, that's right. Karen, are you recording yet? You are okay. great. So great. let's keep so. Um, I just said the Kim Wilton archives, mm -hmm. and you said yes. Uh, I probably have the story somewhere, and I wonder if it makes sense to like formally start this informal conversation with the fact that, like, I've known you as Kim Wilton for a long time, but these days you also have, and have for a while, also had a you have a, a kind of rank and I a do. title. And what is that? Right now, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Kim Wilton. Yeah. For which? I'm for the Royal Canadian Air Force, the RCF. So you're Lieutenant Colonel Kim Wilton for the RCF. RCAF. RCAF. I left out the A, which seems important. It does. No force without the air. How did you end up becoming Lieutenant Colonel for the RCAF? Well, I say attrition, right? You know, like that's how I end up as a Lieutenant Colonel. But honestly, you uh, you show up and you work hard, right? So, but I'm in the I've been in the RCAF for 22 years, so. Um, yeah, that's just the rank I'm at right now. What you been doing for them? Uh, I fly helicopters for the RCAF. I um, have a tactical background for the first 10 years of my career. And then the last 10, 12 years, I've been in the training regime. So dealing with making new pilots. Flying and training other people to fly. Yes. And we were talking a minute ago about stories you wrote and read when you were in college. Mm -hmm. Did those ever involve you flying big objects? No, I never had plans of being a pilot. That wasn't uh, that wasn't in the story. When I was young, I thought only wealthy people became pilots because it was really expensive to get a license. So uh, it was never something I considered. So, how, like, what ended up bridging the distance between that thought that other people did that and then you ended up doing it? Um, I was a truck driver, as you know, for a number of years. And when I first started driving truck, I was delivering a load to um, a warehouse near Vancouver International Airport. And I saw a helicopter landing. And at that time, I was just starting out. So I was with a Ken, this older gentleman, was teaching me how to drive. And he was explaining he had a buddy who drove chopper and it cost about 50 grand. And I was like, okay, note to self, I will save $50,000 and I will become a helicopter pilot because that looks amazing. The idea of being able to land and take off anywhere, like didn't need a runway, all of that. So that's what I did. I saved $50,000. And then someone said to me at some point on the road that, well, you can join the RCAF and... Um, at that time, we weren't royal. We were just the royal, the, the Canadian Air Force, the CAF, um, and uh, they'll pay you to train. And so I enrolled and it worked out. So it was seeing that thing land. Yes. What was cool about that? Uh, helicopters are magic, right? Like um, when 
Have you ever been in a helicopter? Just the one. Actually, I was in a helicopter that you had landed outside Chicago. And then a long time ago when I worked for the Park Service, I was in a helicopter twice in Hawaii. So when you were in Hawaii, because the one you saw with me, you just it was just parked there. The one in Hawaii, when you were in it, it felt different than a plane, correct? Absolutely. It, it's this... It's like an alien craft that can go anywhere. Like my favorites when it's in the hover environment and you're like, that looks interesting. I'm just going to move sideways to get to it or I'm going to turn around the nose to get to it. That maneuverability is amazing. And the fact that you can land on a mountaintop or land on a rooftop of a hospital, like the ability to land anywhere. I mean, I just think it's phenomenal. Was it hard to learn how to fly one of those things? Um Yes and no. So I think anyone can learn how to fly a helicopter. It's 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 a physical movement, uh, like it's learning how to drive. The military, why it's challenging? Um, we have we have an attrition rate uh, to get to wings. Standard is because we want it done in a very fixed amount of time. Um, so when the military is looking for certain parameters that you're strong at, so they can train you quickly. But um, so it is challenging. It's harder than a fixed wing, for sure. Because there are more variables to deal with? You have different different controls. So a fixed wing is almost like 2D. You've got the yoke and you've got your rudder pedals. Uh, but there's a third element with helicopter. So you have your cyclic, uh, which is controlling your attitude, uh, which is your left hand. You have got a collective. Oh, sorry, it's your right hand, your collective, and your left hand is deciding your height. And then you have your pedals still that are sorting out your drift. So it's there's more variables. So it's it's different. Sounds different. Sounds hard. Sounds like drumming, but more consequential. There is a relationship to that. So I once met uh, this person in the military said the people most successful for getting through pilot training were people who had a sports background who were drummers, like for helicopter pilots. And I did play drums in high school. So maybe that was setting my course for well, me. And I didn't know. You didn't know. I didn't know. And you've been training people to do it for 10 years. I have. Can I just ask, like, is there a personality that seems more suited to it? I think it's like anything. It's simply if, if you're passionate about it, you're going to figure it out, right? And at least in the military, people who've gotten that to that point are very motivated. Like, as I joke, I don't teach grade 10 English, right? Like, people want my job that I'm teaching. And for the RCAF, we only give wings to about 100 people a year, so maybe 40, 45 helicopter pilots a year. So it's a very small club. So uh, so the so what for that is I have a very motivated student, so they take what you give them. Mm-hmm. I got to ask, how many of the 45 a year are men? How many are women? So the official number right now is we're about 5% female for the pilot trade. In the Canadian Royal uh, Canadian Forces, it's different numbers for different militaries around the world. But Canada is one of the highest uh, for the number of women at the five percent. Five percent, one of the highest. Yes. When you were going through, when uh, I was going through, it was two percent, um, and as I said before, I was a truck driver, and uh, when I was a truck driver, that was one percent. So. When I left trucking and became 
uh, military, I was doubling my numbers, right? I was going from 1% to 2%, which sounded amazing. But um, so, yeah, so the numbers aren't great. Overall, the air, the military has 17% female for Canada, which is one of the highest in the world, actually, unless you get into the weeds of countries that have conscription. Like you look at countries like Israel, I think it's Sweden or Switzerland. There's a few countries that have a few dynamic programs like that. But in general, Canada has one of the highest and we still have a long way to go, like there's dark targets and desires. The goal was to be 25.1% female by 2026. We're not going to make it. Um, we're probably increasing just under 1% a year-ish right now. Um, and the U.S. numbers are fairly similar. Um, they're a little bit lower, but so close, fairly similar. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about doubling the numbers as you went from driving trucks to yeah. flying helicopters. Um there are probably too many differences in the experience of like driving trucks on one hand or flying helicopters on the other. But do, maybe I'll ask about similarities. There's quite a few similarities. So, for example, uh, I flew the Chinook helicopter operationally, which is the big one, tandem rotor. It's about a hundred feet long tip from tip to tip on the rotors or the base of the helicopter or the the airframe is about 50 feet and a tractor trailer is 53 feet long. So it's about the same dimension. So there were some similarities because ultimately it's operating equipment. Whether it's a helicopter, a truck, uh, a tractor, it's all equipment and just figuring out those dimensions you care about. So what I mean by that is for a truck, I care about how I swing around corners or when I'm backing up how it maneuvers left and right. Uh, when I was getting my private pilot's license with Assessa, so then I'm thinking more about the wings and my width and what that looks like when I'm taxiing out so I don't hit something I'm not even thinking about that's several car car widths to the right that I wouldn't have to think about if I was on a in a car or a motorcycle. So it's it's just different dimensions, but it's the same idea. And maybe I should note you just said if it was in a car or a motorcycle and when we met, it, the motorcycle was your vehicle. Yes, uh, I love motorcycling. Um, at that time, I was traveling all over on my motorcycle all through North America. Yeah, and there you were a hundred percent of the people doing that as part of the program you were on. You were on your own program. I was on my own program. I had finished university, and I was lucky enough to have no student debt and had the road open and a bit of savings. So I spent two years traveling around North America on my motorcycle. So motorcycle, truck helicopter. You've talked so far about both the truck and especially the helicopter primarily in technical terms. But I'm curious if I can ask about the cultural experience of especially, let's start with helicopter. Um, Cultural experience, helicopter. How do you mean? I mean, what were the people like that you were training with and that you fly with? Okay, so... I wouldn't say it's any different whether I'm a pilot or I'm an infantry or I'm an intelligence officer. What I love about the military and I didn't anticipate when I enrolled is camaraderie. So I did not have a background in team sports. I played a lot of, I did a lot of sports, like individual sports though. So um, it's camaraderie like a team sport, but more. Hmm. Because since then I have played team sports. So what, um, when you go through basic training, so for me, it was a 13-week course in Saint-Jean, Quebec, with, uh, you know, there was about 100 of us in four platoons um, from all over Canada that I'd never met before. And by the end of the 13 weeks, 
like some of them are still some of my closest friends, right? Mm. Because uh, you're embracing the suck together and you're training together and it's just you're all for the same the same goal of whether that's building a rope bridge or uh, doing some small party tasks to get through that basic training. So there's this camaraderie that exists in the forces that um, is is beautiful, quite honestly, mm. right? Like it's my favorite part when I was deployed being with my team. It's even now when I go to work, um, those the people I go to work with, like we're a small air force. Some of these people I've known for 20 years in it, like I'll see them for five years and then I won't see them for a decade. But I know for any of them, I can touch base with them today if I have something, like I have a problem and, and they'll, they'll help, right? Like they're reliable. Mm-hmm. So camaraderie. Yeah. Was camaraderie affected by your gender as far as you could tell? Um, I was very fortunate because I think there was a few things that worked to my favor. I came from a trucking background, so it's a pretty tough world, the trucking. So um, so I came in as a mature student, if you will. I enrolled when I was 29 years old, and so many people I was going through were younger than me. So I guess I had street cred. I was a bit older. Um, and I was a bit tougher because I'd just come off the road of driving for six years. So um, I was given, I had that going for me as well. Um, it's the, if you can do the job, then what's there to give you a hard time about, right? So I'm passing the courses, I'm doing the flights, so I was successful. Um, and that I, um, I mean, I'm fairly easy to get along with, I think, as well. So that helped, having a good sense of humor. I mean, I don't know, all all through my flight training and most of my career, I'm generally the only female. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in the past few years, like when I've been on squadron or deployed, um, my my favorite FO, first officer, Sylvie, like we're still BFFs. Mm-hmm. So there's a few females in there, but generally um, it's not uncommon for me to be the only female in the room, but I've certainly never seen it to be a factor. Hmm. Do you like it? Uh, I'm, no, I'd like more females in the room. So um, you're always uh, doing what you can to spread the word or uh, increase the numbers of uh, women even just uh, in trying to enroll or going through the selection process just mm-hmm. to get the numbers up. So I, I would like more. Yeah. Yeah. So you said deployed kind of as a, a little bit of it, it passed fast, but I want to go back to that. Sure. Deployed where and for how long? So I did two deployments to Afghanistan between 2008 and 2011, flying the Chinook um, uh, in Operation Athena is what uh, Canada called it at that time uh, with uh, NATO forces. So I was working with Americans, Aussies, Brits, the whole, the whole uh, entourage. So I was there for a total of 15 months between my two deployments. And flew... Flew the Chinook, so I flew, um, I did 100 combat missions between the two tours, a bunch of, I was a maintenance test pilot as well, so a lot of maintenance flying, Um, and just, I have just over 800 hours on the Chinook. So a little bit ago, I said you're talking about, you had talked mostly about the technical experience of flying, and then I asked a cultural question, but it seemed like the question I was asking then was about the culture during training in Canada. Did you know when you enlisted that you were going to end up being deployed? Uh, I certainly knew deployments were a thing. Absolutely. Canada at that time. So I enrolled in January 2001. So at that time, Canada's role was generally peacekeeping. So Bosnia had happened, a few other things like that. And then obviously September 11th, uh, huge impact not only 
on the states but on the world right and um so when i enrolled i had no idea that was coming up and how what um a game changer it would be for my life because that's how i ended up in afghanistan this is too broad a question but like what was it like to end up in afghanistan so it would i can't it would be the peak of my flying career without a question um uh, it was really challenging for lots of reasons, uh, but often things that are challenging are also the most satisfying. I had no doubt in the mission that we were doing. So as a Chinook pilot, I was flying troops and their stuff from point A to point B, um, sometimes just in a, a logistics way and sometimes in the middle of the night uh, on, on an operation. So it would vary sort of thing, the parameters, but I, I move stuff and people. And... Um, as I, I would always to give a mission brief before every mission, because uh, I was usually the AC and the, the aircraft captain and the air mission commander. And so, I mean, we were there to combat evil as far as I was concerned. And even the little part that we were doing, whether it was keeping soldiers off the road or supporting the Afghan National Army or the Afghan National Police or other NATO allies, um, we were there making things more secure for the, the citizens of Afghanistan. I assume the language that you got about the mission was not something like what you just, it was not combat evil. No, it would be more like, there would be the high level that I wouldn't see because I was just a line pilot. So more mine would be, the mission I would get is, we need to get troops inserted into this LZ landing zone for this time frame, or you need to drop this uh, M777 artillery piece here at this time frame. But um a typical day would have multiple missions within it, mm -hmm. like uh, because I would be flying all day. So it would be kind of putting those all together. And to me, that would make it very clear to my crew what we're doing, like why we're doing Because there's moments that it wasn't fun and moments it was dangerous that why we're doing it. And it was pretty clear. Everyone was on the same page. That's why it was so challenging because you go to work today, uh, here, wherever you are, not everyone at the office is on the same page of what the goal is of that institution or that day. Yeah. But in Afghanistan, it was very clear every day what the goal was, right? It was to get allied forces from point A to point B safely and to support the Afghan country, right? As it, it stood up its own, its own capabilities. So there was no, the clearness of the goal mm. and the, um, uh, the desire to get that goal made it uh, really satisfying in many ways. It, it felt to me like you named two goals. The first one seemed much clearer than the second. The first one being to get allied forces from safely from point A to point B. The second one to support the country, the citizens of Afghanistan. That seems like potentially quite a complicated goal. Yes. So that would be the oh, the higher level goal. For me, in my day-to-day, -day, what I'm doing is helping them get to that goal, but I'm one piece in that phenomenally complicated operation uh, of uh, Operation Athena. I'm just moving like 30 guys here and a little thing there, a little thing there, in this huge complexity of that theater. So that's why I think of what I'm doing is, is more close to me because it's what I'm doing that day. But yeah. big picture, what I'm doing is supporting the bigger goal. Yeah, and you... you Referred to very full days. Yes. Where did you sleep? So the first tour, so Canada was late to the war, so we didn't, 
were a bit late, uh, late to the parties. I used to joke, so we didn't we didn't always get the best apron space for our helicopters or the best lodging. So the first deployment, and we still had a great compared to most. So the first tour, I was in modular tents, so long tents, uh, just on the flight line. So I was in the the female tent. So there was a eight of us in the tent, so eight to a tent, and then uh, we'd have a a shower bathroom trailer. Um, that we'd access and uh, we were on one side of the, so we were in Kandahar and we were on one side of the airfield and then our helicopters were on the other side of the airfield. Um, second tour, same distance, but I was in like hard stand the second time. But again, both were amazing because I had air conditioning. So yeah, it was loud. Yeah, there was rocket attacks once in a while on the camp or something like that, but nothing compared to the guys out at the FOBs or the, the people we were supporting. It was, it was pretty comfortable. So I'm thinking about the fact that you, you just, I think, said that there were eight women in the temporary housing you were in, and it made me think about gender stuff. So there's within the Canadian Air Force, Allied Forces, and then there's the country you were in, Afghanistan, which has its own gender stuff going on. Yeah. How, how did that hit you? I was, like, in a totally separate country within a country. So... um and then I was even within a country, within a country, within a country, because I'm in the Canadian lines. So I am wearing a Canadian uniform. I'm with my Canadian peeps. And yeah, we're supporting all the other countries. But um, I'm in my Canadian lines. So I'm, I trust my fellow Canadians. We're all there for the same effort. Um, but there's a lot like the Kandahar airfield. There's a, it's a big camp. Like there's thousands of people there. There's civilians, military Afghans, not Afghans. So there's even parts of the camp you'd have to be careful of. Like, I'm armed at all times. That's why it's ironic. But then to step outside the wire um, or fly outside the wire, that's like, that's a different world, right? Like, that's like, um, as far as a woman, like, that's, it's it's insane, right? Like, it's just, it's to go from a... North America is one of the top countries in the world as far as quality of life for females. To Afghanistan is one of the, was one of the bottom bottom ten easily, right, for quality of life for females. So it's definitely a land of extremes, and you you would see it flying over it for sure. And did you feel that sense of like? It seems to me one way to describe it would be a sense of danger. Uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think about it in different ways, like. We would always think about what if we went down, for example, like we had crashed or shot down and we'd have all these protocols to follow. Fortunately, never happened for us. Like we there were some issues for some crews not getting shot down, but accidents. But it was always they were secured LZ right away and extracted by friendly troops. Uh, but you think as a female, it's not only getting taken, but there's going to be that that. Uh, uh, likelihood of rape or assault that comes with that. Um, so you think about those things, but really periphery, because it's not changing my mind about the mission or what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. Is that what you mean? I think that's what I mean. What do you mean it's not changing your mind? Or You made it sound like you understood it intellectually, but it didn't land in a deeper way. I guess I wonder about that. Did it? How did you keep that sort of compartmentalized or at bay? I believed in the mission. And I believe that we were doing our part to support Afghanistan. And I was certainly doing my support part to support allied troops. And you're already just putting yourself in danger being there. So it's just it's just another piece of danger. Mm -hmm. It's just another piece of danger. Right. That's a 
dismissive way to talk about what sounds pretty serious to someone who's never done anything at all resembling what you're I, describing. I guess so. But for me, uh, what I was doing was pretty safe compared to the guys doing the road moves. Because the reason Canada took, Canada didn't have Chinooks. Uh, well, we used to have sea models. We retired them. So when um, Canada decided to go Afghanistan, they didn't. we didn't have a helicopter element in Afghanistan initially. And we were losing a lot of troops to IEDs on road moves. So um, a report was written, the Manly Report in Canada, and it was this discussion, do we stay in Afghanistan because we're taking so many, um, so many um, injuries and losses? And the recommendations of the report, there was a few recommendations, and one of them was we need medium lift helicopters to mm -hmm. stay. And so that Canada bought six used D models from the States, took possession of them in Afghanistan. Uh, so all this was to get troops off the ground. And you could feel the energy of the troops. So the goal was once we were there, for example, when guys finished their tour and they would be out at FOVs for operating bases, which is where they'd be positioned out all over the provinces, is that uh, they would their last trip out would not be in a road move. That was that was the deal. So there were like the most uh, exhilarating flight, I think, was one night. It was out of Mazamgar, I believe. It's it's dark, um, and I'm picking up 25 troops, 30 troops. It's their their, their tour is done. They've survived six months, which is amazing, mm. and they have been in combat. Mm. And as soon as my wheels lift up, and it's Chinooks really loud, you can hear them cheering in the background. Like you can literally hear them cheering mm. as you're lifting off to take them back to CAF because they figure Kenhart Airfield because they figure they've made it right. Mm. Like they they know that. So. That was what was the most gratifying being there. It was great working with my crew, but it was the soldiers we were supporting. What was the hardest part of being there? Um, I think it was near the end of my first tour because there was a lot of air losses happening. So it was like every day another helicopter or another aircraft was going down. So the danger element was, you were very aware of it. Um, yeah, and some of them were close like hmm. like it was an mi8 that was literally crash landed while it was on final to the apron where we were parked like some of my crew members were the ones pulling bodies out of that crash like there was just something happening every other day that summer it was would have been 2009 eight uh it was just there was it was it was it's dangerous was that something you had to learn how to apprehend um i mean what you you're your coping mechanism was being smart about your mission, right? So you you plan your mission, you figure out your best in routes, out routes, you take advantage you, of the intelligence available. You, I mean, I had total faith. I never flew without escorts. So what that meant is two Griffin helicopters that are always watching out for my best interest and my crew, like keep that Chinook alive because uh, we're a pretty big target. Um, so you you do all these things to increase your odds. You change your your, your tactics getting in and out of places, you change your time of day, you change your pattern. Um, so you do these things uh, to increase your odds. You're listening to The Detour by Oregon Humanities.
tough to think about odds in that context. It makes total sense, and it's also tough at the same time. So just just telling you that while okay. listening to you, and also wondering about. I was thinking about how you talked about uh, the camaraderie, and also the that there were some connections between driving a truck and flying helicopter. And I guess I wonder. Were there parts of driving a truck other than the dimensions and the vehicular aspect, either with respect to the danger or dealing with being in the one or two percent that you feel like prepared you for this? Yeah, but different. Like there was a danger element to trucking. So, so I was trucking, I guess, 1996 to 2001. So quite a few years ago now. And I drove solo for much of that. And, uh, Female truck drivers really were very, very rare. Like, I probably saw enough on one hand in the entire time I was driving. They were very rare. So it would not be uncommon for me to have people trying to break into my truck. I was, like, a typical moment, and this would just be a snapshot in a day, is uh, I would pull into um, a rest area in the States, one of the interstates. It would be empty. I would pull in. I would get out of my truck to walk and use the facilities. By the time I walked out, it would be full of trucks because it had gone out in the CB radio that a female was uh, had pulled into that rest area. So you just get to... So you had to develop this pattern of making sure you parked smart like and just would watch your back um so i would make a point of parking in company parking lots right i'd make a point of like not just locking my door but i'd have a seatbelt that would go around the handle of my door and click in so you'd have that extra second fail safe or you'd also like it sounds extreme but you'd have a hammer close because i'm canadian i'm not armed so and you can tell that when you're looking at another truck with Canadian plates. They're not going to have a, an, uh, a weapon, as most American, many Americans, many American drivers will have a weapon. Mm. So you just take precautions to increase your odds. So it's the same. I guess it's the same idea. Yeah, we're smiling at each other now. With, with other, which other people probably can't see. Uh, I don't know what the sound of quiet smiles is, and especially smiling for me, it feels like a tense smile because of the way in both cases what. Increasing your odds sounds, again, really tough. Yeah, but everyone does it in their life, right? Whether it's um, pay, paying attention when you're getting money out of a bank machine if there's anything behind you, right? Uh, making sure that you change your password once in a while so that you're, you're secure. We're all taking measures all the time for our safety. So it's mm -hmm. the same idea. And it just changes what your element is, how safe your world is, how many how many levels of security you have to put in place. So you spoke pretty clearly about why the mission in Afghanistan, the missions in Afghanistan felt motivating and had real clarity. And I can see why the risk and the danger there, like, ah, they're worth it. You've just described another level of risk and danger in driving a truck. What made driving a truck worth having to do that as you prepared to go to sleep? Well, I love trucks. Like, I love driving. So the job interested me. I needed a job. Um, I mean, there's risk everywhere, right? Like, it's just, you just get on with business. So there's more risk in some places than others. There like, are, absolutely. So uh, a load to uh, 
Calgary to Toronto, my risk level is low. My risk level would honestly increase when I would cross south. Um, into yeah, the United into States. Into the States. But that's where much of the work was. Like I did a lot of stateside, so we call it. So um, that's just the demand of the job. And you would pay, you're paid for that demand piece. Just like no one wants to go to New York City, so you get paid more for that on top. So there's different things. Um, yeah, so and it's part of just seeing the world, right? And doing the job. It's disheartening and totally predictable to hear you say that it got worse when you crossed the border into the States. Um, before you were driving trucks, you were riding a motorcycle, again, solo around the continent, as I understand it. Mostly Canada and the States. Mexico, just a little bit. I was a little too sketch. So mostly States and Canada. When you say it was a little too sketch, I think, huh. Well, I didn't speak Spanish at the time. And um, yeah, I was young too. I was 21 and uh, it was just, it was just getting a little uncomfortable. Just, and I should say like, we've known each other for what, 32 yeah. years or something? Something like that. And I think of you as someone who is less attached to comfort than maybe anybody I know. And you're kind of shrugging at me as I say that. Like, what do you think about the word comfort or where it shows up for you? Um, I don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are, do you go after things that aren't comfortable? Um, I look at when I have options, I look at what's going to be the bigger challenge because that's the one I should follow. I try not to make decisions based on money. Um, when I'm making career choices, I look at what the challenge is and what I could learn from it, like if it will make me better at something, I guess. What what feels like the challenge or the challenges you're most engaged with these days? These days, it's my challenge um, with the military. My challenge is working as a lieutenant colonel gray rank because I'm, I'm supervising people, so it's 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 supporting people like my my team keeps getting bigger and bigger and figuring out what the the mission is there and then uh as you know i have a life outside the military so i farm as well um so that is probably a, a pretty big challenge as well um the challenge of supporting a team of people at a school uh does that feel sufficiently enlivening to you um, yes, because I like being able to help people, right? Like support them so that they're able to do a good job. So we've all had good bosses and bad bosses. So I like giving people the opportunity and the support they need so that they can attain what they want to attain, whatever that desire is, whether it's becoming a better instructor or working on a t particular problem or project. So I like giving them the support to do that. And then I like working on my own projects within, whether it's making a new training plan or making a new, um, some sort of project like that. And then when you're not doing that, you're, you're working on a farm. I am. Which feels, it feels so different from flying a helicopter in a war zone or driving a truck on highways across the country or a couple of countries or riding a motorcycle by yourself including in places where you don't speak the language. Uh, 
does it feel continuous with those or does it feel like a real departure? There's some things that are continuous because it's operating equipment. So my comfort, comfort space is because I'm still driving truck for the farm. I'm operating uh, combines, tractors, like I'm very hands-on uh, for operating equipment. So I'm spending a lot of time in the tractor seat or the combine seat. So that's very familiar to me and operating equipment, figuring out what's right, what's wrong, what needs servicing. So that's similar. Combines, again, a bunch of rotors inside rather than outside. So that's similar. There's differences because now I'm thinking about seasons, crop rotations, uh, weather patterns, though the weather pattern piece in aviation kind of overlap. But uh, so there's a lot of dissimilarities, but ultimately it's just another, and it's a challenge, right? It's just another challenge in a different way. Mm -hmm. When we started talking with these funny headphones on and these microphones in front of us, we were talking about uh, stories that you wrote when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Why were you writing stories when you were... I have no idea. Yeah? Yeah. What kind of stuff were you writing about? Um, uh, I don't even... I never go back, so I don't know. I just... read Like you, I loved reading. still love reading, so I write a lot. And when I was in high school, my plan was to finish high school, get on my motorcycle, drive to Mexico, um, live on a beach for a dollar a day in a hammock and write a novel. My parents were not supportive of that. And they strongly encouraged me to go to university first. So I did. And then I went to Mexico and found the beach. But I never got around to writing the novel. So I think the stories were just this dream of maybe it's like that stepping stone to writing a novel. But uh, I think there's enough great writers out there that I don't need to fill that niche. I can just operate equipment and grow crops and that'll work out too. <laughs> But I'm looking forward to your novel. I really wish you would get around to it, Adam. Well, uh, keep encouraging me. That might be the biggest challenge you've mentioned so far. Okay. Um, it's interesting uh, thinking about, I want to say the body of work, although some of it is unpaid. It's sort of an orientation towards how you are in the world that uh, I think for you, even as you sit here, you describe it as if you have a kind of unremarkable way of even the gesture you're making now, which is dismissive. It is. Like, it's it's not remarkable. Like, to me, it isn't. Um, yeah. But you must encounter people like me who say, huh, you're, you're doing something unusual. You're doing something that makes me want to know more. Is that something you get a lot? I get more people making assumptions of who I am. So, um, I mean, the term right now, mansplaining. Like, I get people, like, sometimes explaining stuff to me, and I'm like, I'm good. I've got 5,000 hours, so, but thanks for explaining to me what a pedo tube does. Like, I, I have those moments a lot, um, is more my experience these days. Or I'll, like, I don't like working the air show circuit. Like, I really detest it. So, the air show circuit is... You land your helicopter and it's a static display, maybe an aerial display for, and it's a way of, um, you know, having uh, interaction with the public of what the military does, um, because I just can't handle the insane questions. It'll be like it'll be. I've been at air show displays. I'm working with one other person, and they don't fly the aircraft. I do. We're both in uniform, and the guy will ask the 
someone will ask the the guy the question. He will say, I don't know, you'll have to ask her. And you can see the pain um, <laughs> of him asking me the question and my ability to answer it. Or I get questions like, so have you been flying this long? And when I say over 20 years, you can see like the discomfort, right? So I just, uh, that's what fatigues me. So um, that's what I experience more now is people's assumptions about people. You referred to a difference before between Canada and the U.S. in terms of your sense of danger when you were driving trucks. That feeling of annoyance at who the guy comes up and talks to, uh, is that the same or does it feel different depending on which country you're in? Um, I don't spend enough time in the States anymore, so I, I, I don't know. So what you were describing was what happens in, in your own country? In my own country, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, and I understand why, because I don't, like, there's not a lot, like, 5% of the Air Force is female pilots, right? So, I guess I understand it, but I, it's made me very cognizant to not make assumptions about people. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, but I've had that my whole life where I've noticed that people have made assumptions about me. Uh, so, I'm very cognizant of it. So, for example, in farming, farming's got its own sexism issues, believe me. So, um it's very common for the salesman, whether he's selling whatever product, he will always go to the male and the farming couple. So, uh, for example, when I'm approaching a couple who are farming, I, I'm cognizant that I try and start with a female, right? To Like little things like that, the assumptions that people make, I, I find tiring. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing any change at all over, over your life in the assumptions people make or the roles people are showing up in? I would say in the military, so within my bubble of the military, I don't get surprised of what I am. Like, it's such a small military, most people would have heard of me or know me or have no problem believing me, especially because when I'm in a formal uniform, we wear our resume, right? Mm. Like, I have my medals from what tours I've been on, what accommodations I have, so I there's no question of who I am. So I don't experience that within the military. Um and in civilian street, if I'm wearing a uniform, they just see military, so they don't understand the code, but they, I'm wearing it, so I must be good. Um, uh, as far as the civilian side, I'm not sure, because, again, I got off the air show circuit a few years ago because I couldn't handle it, so I don't know. It just seems like you, you have chosen to be in contexts where the gender differences are so stark that it would be it'd be an interesting perspective from which to gauge whether there's anything changing over a couple decades or whether it feels like here we are again and you talked about being tired i mean i hope it's changing like i i know for the the air force we're really looking at you know people like me going out and talking to people so because you you don't know it's an option until you see someone else is done and you're like oh it hadn't occurred to me that I could uh, be a downhill skier. That's a thing for someone my color or my gender or my whatever, right? So um, so I think most people are aware it's an option now. I don't necessarily mean that thinks that means that people think they want to do that option, but that they know they could be that maybe. How much is that in your mind when you've done these things? How much have you been thinking about these choices, not only for yourself, but also thinking, maybe I'm making it more likely that other women will? Uh, I'm very cognizant, I would say, over the past at least five years that I have a responsibility um, 
to uh, that I'm mentoring at all times, whether I realize it or not, and that I have um, a responsibility to help others um, and to be a to be present so people know it's an option. So you were asking me the other night, you know, what what my career goals are within the the RCF, and I was like, I I don't know, but I know that. Every time I get another position, sometimes or often, I'm the first female in that position. And that's important. It's not for me to look at me, I'm the first, but that it can be done so that more and more can do it. So Mm -hmm. I think I feel a responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. You're visiting Portland. uh, At this moment, sadly, yes. Since I'm sitting in this booth. Sadly, because you've been confined to this also challenging experience. Yes. Which I'm kind of enjoying. Well... Steep rent. Maybe I should have got a hotel. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, what's it feel like to be walking around where you don't have your resume on your person? It's great. I I love not being in uniform. I like I like not people not knowing who I am. So why? Um, because I I'm I'm a fairly private person. That's why I don't have a social media presence, for example. And this isn't my scene. Uh, so I like it when people don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to be. I mean, I'm I'm sort of sorry to be inflicting this particular sorry. challenge on you. Um, I guess I'm thinking. I keep going back while we're talking to like college chem radio show reading, reading your own stories, which doesn't sound that private. No, it doesn't. But I mean, 19 year olds aren't that smart. I mean, it's just you just you just do having fun and doing stuff and. It's a long time ago. Okay. Um, You know, ideally 30 years from now, we look back and go, there I was at 52 thinking I knew. Now I've gotten smarter. Do you feel like you have sort of questions about what you're up to now that feel like challenging questions, live questions? Um, I'm not sure. I'm just kind of busy working, whatever the short-term goals are with work, with farming. So long-term, I, I mean, strategies always work hard. Don't be a jerk. Seems to generally work out. So I was just going to keep with that strategy. Just work hard. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. Find something challenging. Yeah. And just keep pressing. Okay. Um, Karen, as you've been listening, can I ask you like anything that you want to ask about that... It's Kieran here, the producer of The Detour. I was engineering this interview, and as I listened behind the glass, I was struck by many risks Kim spoke about. Risks associated with truck driving and military service that Kim found herself in because of violent and predatory behavior of men. How these things had happened to her because she was a woman. This observation couldn't be entirely separated from my own lived experience, but even as I tried to take my own views out of it, it still felt like something that Kim didn't elaborate on, and that listeners might want to know more about. So I asked her how, if at all, these situations had changed her relationship with men. Kieran, through the glass window, just asked, given so many of the experiences you've had, I think Kieran's wondering, has have your experiences conditioned your thinking about men in a certain way? Well, 99.9% of my experience have been positive, right? Um, so yes, I have these uh, or I had at different points, uh, whether that was when I was trucking or Afghanistan, these different security measures so that I would be safe. But um, 
the majority of time, I have had a great time working with both men and women. And I was always very cognizant, for example, when I told that anecdote about when I was trucking and being very careful where I parked, that I was also one of my strategies, self-defense, was the air horn, because I knew there was enough good guys out there that would come help me. So I, I've never had this inclination to be anti-male because I've got so many great male friends, both in trucking and motorcycling and um, aviation that have helped me get where I am, right? Mm -hmm. I couldn't have learned these disciplines without them because all of my, almost pretty much all of my teachers have been men. Um, many, all my, most, many of my mentors have been men. So, um, so it's been easy not to hate them. Mm -hmm. That's somewhat heartening. Okay, yeah. I think, I, I don't want to, just in the interest both of this experience for us as friends and my experience as a man, so the whole gender, I don't want to keep this going any longer than it should. Um, let me ask you just a, a question or two about this. Like, how, what level of discomfort have you had talking about this stuff? To me, it's not uncomfortable talking about it. It's the recording and mm. making it public because I am very private. Um, so I like the privacy aspect. And I'm also like, we're in a weird world right now where things get taken really out of context. And and things that, like you see it all the time right now with someone who just says something or wrote something. And even if they were wrong, they're they're slayed for it and it's it's a very unforgiving world right now so that's where i also get paranoid so i i mean i don't have a social media presence for a bunch of reasons but i don't like how the world reacts to when people make mistakes and mm -hmm. not letting them say i sorry or just understanding people make mistakes and chill out mm -hmm. so that's really what that discomfort i feel about recording is that piece because what soundbite gets taken and, and mm -hmm. misunderstood i mean the good news is we don't have a lot of reach great I'll be sure to give you some negative reviews on what people are always asking on for iTunes or whatever it is. Uh, I'll be sure to have some negative reviews to bring that down. To, to drop it even further? Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Um, well, maybe I'm trying to read your expression, Kieran. Another question from Kieran. Uh, you seem to go towards the bigger challenge. Why do you choose the bigger challenge? Big picture, I don't know the answer for that, but I know that you get... I, from what I've learned from living that is that I get uh, a better payback from it. Like I become, I I get better, sati more satisfaction from the bigger challenge and I become a better whatever it is, right? Um, so it uh, it makes me stronger. And uh, um, I would think as a, an instructor in one course I took once mentioned that it's at that uncomfortable point where you learn, right? When you're being pressing yourself, so you're you're not comfortable is when you learn. So I think those bigger challenges put you in that that space more often. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what it feels like to fly a Chinook? Oh my God, it's so amazing. Okay, so it has this vibration. It's a lateral vibration. And so kind of like a semi, but a bit more of an up vibration. So there's a lateral vibration just while it's rolling on the ground. And then you have the ground taxi piece. So it has wheels. So just maneuvering it and how you steer it is so different. But okay, now we're going in the air. It's the weight. So right now I fly mostly a Jet Ranger, which is a Bell 206. It's quite small. Uh, it's kind of like flying a, a little a dune buggy in the air. 
It's quite cute and sporty. <laughs> but the Chinook is like so weighty and powerful, but yet so maneuverable. So I can like stop on a dime. I'm never short of power. Like it's it's just brilliant to fly. It's it's so amazing. Is it possible to explain to some lunkhead like me who's never done it, or do you just assume not? For you in the back, for someone in the back, it may not feel more amazing. Um, but I know for the, so I did pretty much all of my flying in Afghanistan for the Chinook or at different National Guard units in the States getting ready to go. It's the ability that I need to land there, I need to get in there strategically and doing this crazy 180 and stopping on a dime to get there. And I know I have would have the power at the bottom when I'm coming into that hover. Uh, just having such confidence in that machine. So, um, yeah, no, uh, it's it's a beautiful aircraft, yeah. And what's it like to to drive a motorcycle? Motorcycle's pretty good, too. So, my like, I have a pretty sweet life, right? Because I motorcycle to work in the morning, I fly helicopters during the day, motorcycle home, then I get into a combine and chew through some wheat, right? Like, that is my dream day, and that's what I live quite often. So... Motorcycling is very similar to flying. It's that freedom. It, sometimes it's better because I don't have a crew. It's just me. And um, it's just that constant. What's different than a car is that you feel a bit more in the environment, whether it's the smell of what you're, the canola fields you're going by or uh, you have more interaction with the wind. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty nice. I think I want to leave it there. Okay, great. Me too. Thanks for being game to talk. No problem. Thanks for being interested, I guess. I guess. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. Dave Friedlander is our editor. Ben Waterhouse, Karina Brisky, and Alexandra Powell-Bugden are our assistant producers. I'm Adam Davis. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>